Our passage this morning is found in Luke chapter 13. You turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're just going to look at verses 31 through 35 this morning. As you find your place there, let me remind you of where we've been. Uh, If you're a visitor here this morning, we are traveling through the life of Christ, the harmony of the Gospels. Uh, We are looking at his life chronologically to understand um, what his day-to-day life looked like and how uh, we can learn from him and uh, grow in our understanding of what he came to do. Not just to be a great teacher. He did. He came not just to uh, to perform miracles and amaze the crowds and the masses. He came to be the promised Messiah, the one who would redeem si- uh, sinners and rescue them from the wrath of God. In the last few weeks, uh, starting with uh, when Brother Stewart preached, we've been thinking about the kingdom of God. And uh, when Brother Stewart uh, spoke to us a few weeks ago, he focused on uh, the unexpected results of the kingdom. We looked at the kingdom being like a mustard seed that is the small seed and yet it grows uh, unexpectedly. Uh, to a massive size so, size, so much so that that birds are able to make their nest. That's very unexpected. Um, it's also very unexpected to to uh, take a little leaven and put it in a, um, a, a, a bat of flour and, and see that grow and expand. And he's, he's referencing the power of the kingdom and, and oftentimes the unexpected things that happen within the kingdom. Uh, both internally, as Brother Stewart shared with us, and externally. Uh, they surprise us. They surprise the disciples. Um, and continuing on, kind of in that, that theme of unexpectedness, he commands the, the disciples and those listening to strive to enter this kingdom through the narrow door. And we looked at that uh, last week. And how God is calling us to trust in him fully for salvation, and yet reminding us that the entrance into the kingdom of God is an entrance into a life of struggle and costliness and difficulty along the narrow road through the narrow door of Christianity. And that, of course, is startling. That is unexpected, especially for Jews who thought that they would enter into that 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 door of the kingdom very easily just by their own birthright and maybe if you're here today and you uh, consider yourself someone who um, has entered into the kingdom of God because of your goodness or your righteousness let me warn you at the very beginning that the Bible clearly warns those who believe that they have attained salvation by their own merits as uh, lost as unbelievers, as people who will face the wrath of God for their sins. Because as the Bible says, your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness is merely filthy rags to a holy and righteous God. And so the unexpectedness is that we must strive, that we must fight as we enter in the narrow door, not to attain salvation, but to fight in our salvation. 
And I couldn't help but see the unexpectedness of our passage today. It's very unexpected in what Jesus, uh, his, his words in our passage this morning, as he proclaims judgment, as he proclaims condemnation, upon a a people that expected something very different from their Messiah who would come. Let me read verses uh, 31 through 35. Jesus, or the, the, the writer Luke says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From this passage this morning, we want to look at two main truths we want to look first at the Lord Jesus and his resolve to come and die. His willingness, his determination, his resolve to not allow anything to hinder him from the purpose that he had come to accomplish. And then secondly, we want to look at the reason the Lord Jesus came to die. And that reason is the brokenness and the suffering that the people of Israel clearly demonstrated in their lives and all of humanity demonstrates in in their lives as people who are so corrupted by sin that there is possibly nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We need a Savior to rescue us from our sin. And Israel is a great example of that lifestyle, that legacy of rebellion of that legacy of being enemies of God by their actions and their disobedience. And so the the two main ideas this morning, the, the resolve of our Lord to come and die and the reason that he had to die. First of all, let's look at the, the resolve of our Lord to die. Verses 31 through 33 It's very unexpected, as I said at the very beginning, that these group of Pharisees will come to Jesus, and it seems that they are coming as friends. They're telling Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. It seems that they uh, have some goodwill towards Jesus. And I think if we look at this verse by itself, we might expect that. There were definitely some Pharisees that Jesus had befriended. There was definitely a man named Nicodemus who Jesus had uh, seemed to somewhat convince that uh, he was truly the Messiah. The Nicodemus came to Jesus seeking answers. 
And most people in, in church history believe that at some point Nicodemus and a, a good amount of Pharisees came to know Jesus. But we have to ask, what is the main thrust and the main um, idea that, cir- that, that circles around or encompasses Pharisees in their relationship to Jesus as a whole? In the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how do they portray Pharisees? Well, most often, Pharisees are portrayed as the enemies of God, of the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. They think that they are righteous in what they do, but they have clearly transferred the importance of God's Word with human tradition. Matter of fact, they would say that there is a duality there, that what they had interpreted of the law and their human tradition was on an equal plane to the actual law of God that was given by the mouth of God. So you can imagine the arrogance there. So I believe that the Pharisees are not coming to Jesus as as his friend. They are coming to Jesus in a conniving way. They are being very deceitful. I'll give you a couple reasons why. Number one, most likely the Pharisees really wanted Jesus back near Jerusalem. See, right now Jesus is in Galilee and and, in the area of Perea ministering, and that is out of the normal sphere of influence of the Pharisees. Their hub, their, uh, their, their headquarters was mainly in Judea and in the city of Jerusalem. And it would be there in that area of of Jerusalem in the the outer area of Judea where they had the most influence. And so to kind of, uh, in my belief, deceive or trick or connive in such a way to, to get Jesus to flee this area, they would expect him to flee back to Jerusalem where they could further their plan to kill him. They uh, could do the most damage, you could say, when Jesus was back in Jerusalem because that's where their influence was the greatest. And like I said, there were some Pharisees like Nicodemus who were friends of Jesus. But if you look down in Luke chapter uh, 14, we see that Jesus is having a meal in verse 1 on the Sabbath in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. But notice the verse, the, the phrase right after that in Luke 14, verse 1. He was eating there and they were watching him carefully. This is the following passage. And we know from Luke 20, verse 20, that the scribe and the chief priests would gather together and watch Jesus and send spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch Jesus in something that he said. That's Luke chapter 20, verse 20. So again, Luke is not portraying the Pharisees as a friendly bunch. They're not the welcoming committee in a church. They are up to something, and it's usually no good. And since a lot of the scribes were also paired with the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 20, verse 20, it makes sense to me, as it does in this passage, that the Pharisees were really conniving and they were trying to deceive Jesus to flee in fear. 
and to return back to Jerusalem. And lastly, the, the whole main theme of this passage is about the rejection of Israel. Or the rejection by Israel of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to portray the Pharisees in a positive light. Because they were the very ones that led in that rejection of the people. They were the ones proclaiming that Jesus was a blasphemer and not the Messiah. So keep in your mind this morning that you have this set of people, the Pharisees, conniving and deceiving the Lord. Trying to cause fear, trying to get him to flee. And then you have this threat. The threat of these rulers pursuing him. We don't know if this threat is true. But what we do know is the threat is made by the Pharisees saying that Herod wants to kill you. This it very well could be true. This Herod, as we most likely know, is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great wanted to kill Jesus as a baby. It was, it could very well be in the interest of Herod Antipas as well to want to seek and kill Jesus, but for a different reason. For Herod the Great, his father, the thought of the Messiah being born of the Jews would somehow cause him to relinquish or lose uh, uh, political influence over these people. For th the thought of a king being born might cause uh, some loss of power. So Herod the Great sought out to kill the, the, the children in which led Mary and Joseph to flee for the uh, sake of their child's uh, Innocent murder. Herod Antipas is the son of this ruthless king. Antipas had rule over Galilee and Perea, which where Jesus was ministering at this time. And he was equally ruthless. You guys will remember that this Herod, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Herod Antipas fell in love with his half-brother's wife. And upon divorcing his wife, married her. And John the Baptist was very bold and brave in condemning that marriage as a violation of God's law. And that wasn't going to sit well with Herodias, Herod Antipas's wife. So through a series of events, Herod was convinced to behead John the Baptist. And what's interesting to me, that if this threat is true, and Herod does want to kill Jesus, it would make sense that he wants to kill Jesus because Jesus reflects the ministry of John the Baptist because Jesus was the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry. Remember, even at one point, Herod thought that Jesus was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. So... If Herod really wants to kill Jesus, if this is a legitimate threat, it is because, in my opinion, it is because that the, the pricked conscience of, of Herod sees John the Baptist and this murder that he had committed by beheading John the Baptist. He sees Jesus as a threat, just as John the Baptist was a threat. 
He, sees the, he feels the remorse of killing this innocent man. But we're not really told for sure what that threat might be. But we do know that there is a threat there. And so how does the Lord respond? And this is the main idea. How does he respond? He responds with resolve. He's not going to back down. He's not going to uh, fear. He's not going to be afraid. He is going to, with boldness and confidence, fulfill his ministry. He's not going to stop and, and flee at this point. He stands firm and with, with confidence and assurance in the sovereign work of God and the purpose that, that the Father has is fulfilling in him, he says these words, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, and I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now we can suspect that Jesus is calling Herod a fox because he is uh, implying a craftiness, a deceitfulness of Herod. But the fox was also an insignificant, cowardly creature. It was a vermin. It was an animal that was had little respect. And so, in, in essence, this is a confident stand by Jesus to say, whether this threat was re- legitimate or not... It was a confident stand to say, I will continue and complete my ministry. I will continue to heal. I will continue to, to, to throw my authority upon the demons and cast them out. I will continue to do what I've been sent to do. I will finish my course. Jesus was resolved. Jesus was resolved and nothing was going to stop him. There was no military that could hold him. There was no demon who could resist him. There was no disciple's rejection of him that could depress him. He was resolved. He was resolved to travel and teach with the authority given to him by the Father. He was resolved to expose the legalism and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He was resolved to heal the sick and overpower the demonic world. He was resolved to live a life perfect in every way, actively obeying the law of God in fully in full extent. He was resolved to be re- despised and rejected by men. He was resolved to face the whip on his back, the spittle on his, on his face, the nails in his hands and his feet. He was resolved to bear the mockery and shame of a criminal execution. He was resolved to die the atoning death that man cannot die. He was resolved to be the author of life and yet experience death as a man. He was resolved to defeat the sting of death by raising victoriously from the grave. The Lord Jesus would not fail. He would not fall. He would not forget the purpose that was set before him. That's why he says in verse 32, on the third day, I will finish my course. He says this in a passive tense, which means I will be perfected. I will, I am carried forward to my goal by a sovereign purpose and a sovereign power, and I will complete it. 
And so we, as the people of God this morning, should be encouraged by the resolve of the Lord Jesus and his trust in the sovereign power of God. I mean, by the Spirit of God, our hearts must see and understand that the Lord Jesus Christ says that he will not perish as any of the other prophets will not perish away from Jerusalem. Why? Because God had a plan and a purpose for Jesus to die. And his death would not occur in Tyre and Sidon. It would not occur in uh, Samaria under the hand or the knives of cultural enemies. He was not going to die in Rome under the oppressors of the Roman Empire. He must die in Jerusalem. That was the plan and that was going to happen. We must have confidence in a sovereign work of God that even in the midst of of suffering and trial and temptation and difficulties in the midst of sicknesses, in the midst of loss of job and and sufferings in our bodies and in this world, in the midst of tragedies on the news, in the newspapers, on TV, in all these things, we must cry out to a God who is in control even in the midst of those tragedies. I was reminded this week as I was studying of of the king Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, this pagan king who boasted that he had uh, acquired and and um, gained the the empire before him in his own power and strength. It was a it was a decree of arrogance and pride, and so God humbled him. He humbled him in a very unique and supernatural way, and coming out of that. Humility, Nebuchadnezzar cries out to God and declares, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eye to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and I praise and honor Him who lives forever for His dominion or His kingdom is an everlasting dominion or kingdom. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So I want you to think about this church for a minute. What do we have to fear? What ways do we fall into grave struggle and uh, difficulty in our minds and our hearts where we fear as if God cannot overcome the struggles of our lives? Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection is proof that Jesus and, and, and God's power is greater than our difficulty, is greater than our struggle. And throughout this congregation this morning, that suffering and that struggle is, is un, unmatched, is unheard. Everyone has their each unique, a unique a story of struggle. And let me tell you that there is no greater story of struggle, there is no greater tragedy that you are facing right now than the tragedy of sin that has corrupted every one of us. So Jesus Christ did not come and die to show you that he has power over cancer. 
He came to struggle and die because he defeated the death that is plaguing your life. Your days are numbered. That cancer or that sickness or that tragedy only points to death as being the ruler over you in this earthly state. And Jesus Christ defeated that. That is the greatest victory. And in that great victory, we have hope. We have confidence. Not that those tragedies will go away at this earthly day, but they will one day go away when Jesus returns. That his victory and his resolve to to go to the cross and to die reminds us that we have no fear. That we have no fear that we must press on and have a resolve like Jesus. If the Lord Jesus Christ was resolved to come and die, that we must be resolved to suffer as he suffered. To struggle as he struggled. To face oppressors and to face difficulty. Because we know that by the Spirit of God that's within us, we have a power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, we have the same power to overcome adversity. Whether we're put in a prison or we're put in a, a, a terrible situation at a supermarket, God gives us a power to overcome, to love the unlovable, to show grace to those who are our enemies, to even wash their feet. And we know that he's going to accomplish his purposes in us if we are faithful to him. So the Lord Jesus shows a resolve to die. But secondly, he gives us a reason why he has to die. In verses 34 and 35, this is the lamentation of the Lord Jesus. Luke places this lamentation early in G- earlier in Jesus' ministry. Matthew has a almost word-for-word parallel of this lamentation at the end of Jesus' life. While he is in Jerusalem, he is almost at this point in Matthew's gospel, at the cross. He has just come in through the triumphal entry into the city. And he has this lament in Matthew's gospel. Luke has it before. And it's a reminder of why Jesus came to die. He says in a very compassionate He shows it, expresses a great love for the Jewish people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Understand this, in this phrase of Jesus, we see, first of all, the repetitive Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You remember a while back in, in sitting at the, in the home of Mary and Martha, where Martha is busy doing her uh, serving duties and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus in an intimate way, in a loving way, he says what? Martha, Martha. That repetitive uh, phrase of intimacy, that, that repetition of intimacy that reminds us that the, G- the Jesus Christ that died was a shepherd of the people. That he was a, a person who uh, was broken 
over sin and rebellion. And so here he's at a place where he is reminded of the the legacy of rebellion of the Jewish people. Jerusalem only represented the people of Israel. He's not upset with the city and the uh, as a whole. He's upset with the people within the city. Jerusalem was supposed to be uh, the holy city. And yet within those people that inhabited that city, and people that pilgrimed and, and traveled to that city, it represented a people that were rejecting him and would face the penalty for their sin and their rebellion. And I was reminded this week that, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is expressing this brokenness, but he isn't expressing a brokenness over his own sin. He's expressing a brokenness over the sins of his people. You will be reminded of two instances where Jesus is recorded as weeping in the Gospels. One is when he is at the death of his friend Lazarus. And some might say that Jesus is weeping because Lazarus is his friend and, and, and his friend is dead. But we have to realize that Jesus' plan from the beginning, going in, not even, he hasn't even entered uh, there to, to uh, the, the home of Lazarus. His plan is already to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's not weeping because Lazarus is dead. He is weeping because of the unbelief of, of the people there that do not believe in him and do not understand the power that he has to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is weeping because of the unbelief and because of the sin and the death that not only has affected his friend Lazarus, but is also affecting the world. And so he cries. He weeps in his humanity because of sin and unbelief. But the second recorded instance of Jesus weeping is over the city of Jerusalem. There, as he's entering in, in the triumphal entry, in Luke chapter 19, it says that he drew near, he sees the city, and what does he do? He weeps over it. And why is he weeping? Because the city represents a legacy of rebellion. And it is the sin of that city, and the sin of this city, and the sin of every square inch of this world that has corrupted every human being that is ever born into the world. It is a sin that is the reason for which Jesus came to die. To heal brokenness. To replace suffering with hope. Did you notice I didn't say to replace suffering with healing? Because you may not get healing in this world. You may not face the victory over that disease that may be plaguing your body. But you have experienced, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced a greater victory when Jesus Christ frees you from the burden and the tragedy of the corruption of sin in your life. And so Jesus has come to die, and he is lamenting over this rebellion of sin that Jerusalem represents. 
Their legacy of rebellion led them to to not listen to the prophets who were bringing the word of God. Instead, their legacy that they would be remembered by is that they are people who killed the prophets. Who stoned them. And put them to death as people that were only doing what God had commanded them to do. Who were only being faithful to the word of God that he had been command that he had commanded them to speak but the people wouldn't hear it he says how often would i have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing notice the contrast the resolve and the willing willingness of the lord jesus christ to die and the unwillingness of people to believe in the one who came to die This brokenness over sin. Not the Lord Jesus' sin. This is a broken over, brokenness over the sin of humanity. The personal sin that plagues the lives of every Jew and Gentile. Every human being. And folks, let us be challenged this morning that sin is a heavy weight for our lives. Let me encourage you this morning to evaluate and understand in your own life and and ask, do you feel the heavy weight of sin? Brother Adam read Isaiah chapter 6 earlier about Isaiah's encounter with the holiness of God. The pure, righteous, perfect holiness of God. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that holiness, all Isaiah could do was see his own sin. And in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. In the face of the holiness of God, in the understanding of his purity and his holiness, do you see your own sin? Is it a heavy weight to you? The Lord Jesus Christ was burdened not for the weight of his own sin, but for the sin that was all around him as the Lord of glory. And so the the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we feel the weight of the wretchedness of our sin? Because it's that weight and the wretchedness of our disobedience toward a holy God that leads us to Jesus. Where we cry out, I am helpless. I am a wretch and I need your grace and I need your mercy. You can never come to a true saving understanding of Jesus Christ. You can never truly believe in in him if you are not first broken over the wretchedness of your sin and rebellion against him. And so Jesus is lamenting as the compassionate Savior, the one who is willing to save the people of Israel, even in the midst of a legacy of rebellion. Obviously, people in Israel's history demonstrated faith. Abraham demonstrated faith. Some of his children demonstrated a faith in the promises of God, in the promise of a future Messiah. They believed, and and we are 
praise be to God, given examples of that faith throughout history. But as a whole, Israel was known as rejectors of God. That was their legacy. And so in verse 35, the lamentation turns to condemnation. He says, behold, your house is forsaken. That means desolate. That means vacated. Without hope. Your house is forsaken. And then he prophesies something that is very important to this passage. He says, and I tell you, you will not say blessed is the name or you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a, a, a prophecy of the consummation of God where he will finalize the, the redemptive plan of God. And it seems from this passage that Israel's condemnation will be one of judgment and not of salvation. Again, let me say that from this passage and, 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 a, and a few more, we, were, we are reminded that Israel's future is one as a whole of condemnation and not salvation. The phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a phrase that was proclaimed as pilgrims came in to the city of Jerusalem at Passover. They were coming to worship. They were coming uh, in to, uh, to, to participate in the festivities and the festivals and the feasts that were there. And so those inhabitants of the city would cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as people entered into the city. And we know that that phrase is also used when Jesus enters the city. In the triumphal entry on his way to the cross, his disciples cry out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And so some people want to look at this and, and see that, that this condemnation is a temporary condemnation that leads to a future salvation. Because it, it appears... To some that as, as the phrase, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why would the people of Israel be saying that in the final consummation unless they are saved? Well, what's difficult for that is the other passages of condemnation that, that Jesus gives us, like Luke 19 verses 41 through 44. You could turn there with me. It's a couple pages to the right. I referenced it earlier. When Jesus drew near to the city, he saw the city and he wept, saying, Would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. We know that this prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D., when the Romans came against Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and burned the city. Vespian and his son Titus, these Roman leaders, conquered and destroyed all that was sacred to the Jews and killed thousands and thousands of innocent people in that city. Why? Because they were being judged for not believing in the Messiah who had come. Jesus predicted this. And in 70 AD, it came to fruition They were facing the beginning of the wrath of God. But now Jesus is saying, you will not see me until you say. He's talking about when Jesus returns, you will not say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Church, I don't believe this is a a cumulative group of people crying out to Jesus in salvation. I believe this is a cumulative group of Israel that will be judged for their rebellion, and this is their condemnation. I would say a parallel verse to this is that these uh, these uh, Israelites, those who had lived this legacy of rejecting Christ, who are crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are only saying that because the day has come. The day of judgment, the day of the Lord has come, and they are saying that too late. They are the same ones that Jesus says, who will be weeping in, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where they will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the pre, uh, prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. That was from our passage last week. So my understanding is that, that those who will see Jesus that day and are crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, They are only confessing that too late. Parallel passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. In the same way, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is not a willing confession. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a delinquent confession confession it was a delayed confession and thus it was too late for them to be saved so let's be clear Jesus came into this world to die for sinners and in that dying for sinners we must understand that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, there is one way into the kingdom, and that is through confessing Jesus Christ as the one true eternal Son of God who is both man and God, human and God in the, in the flesh. He came and lived a perfect life. He died vicariously on the cross for our sin, making atonement for our sin, He was buried and he rose victoriously from the grave. When you believe and trust in that Jesus, not the brother of Satan Jesus, not the Jesus who was just a good teacher or prophet, 
The one who is both man and God. 100% man and God. The one who was the better Adam that came to undo what the first Adam brought into this world. The one who was the promised Messiah that had been foretold all the way back in Genesis who would defeat and crush the head of the snake. This Jesus is the one that is the door. It's a narrow door, but he's the only way by which we can enter into heaven. And no Jew in this world and throughout history will ever be allowed into heaven because they were born into a Jewish family. They must confess Jesus as the true Messiah. And if they do, they will be saved. But sadly, their legacy of rebellion and the the storyline of redemption shows that the majority of Jewish people will not believe. And guess what? There will be a large majority of all people who will not believe. Because they have turned their back and rebelled against the, the one who has come to save them from their sin. And so this is the reason that the Lord came to die for sinners. For rebels of heart. Listen, let's, let's put ourselves in a proper perspective we are no different and in, in, we are in the same place as the people of Israel. We are all desert wandering, idol worshiping, necromancer inciting sinful human beings. We are willing to turn to the cares and the riches of the world before we would ever turn to the glory of God. We find uh, so many different uh, Items and earthly things that, that appease our temporary appetites. And yet they are never fulfilling. Our lust, our theft, our sexual immorality, our self-worship is running rampant in our society. And no one is immune to its effect. This is the reason that Jesus came to die because we are in bondage to sin. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to turn from your rebellion. To turn from your wickedness. To allow the heavy weight of your sin to reach out for help from the only one who can save you, your deliverer, your rescuer, your redeemer, Jesus Christ. He is the only one Who can save? So believe in him. And church, that means even us as the redeemed. Day by day, we allow the bondage of sin and the the weight of our sin. Particularly those struggles of sin that we, uh, that constantly rear their heads. Continually in our lives, anger, selfishness. Maybe past shame and guilt. And we must understand the victory that Christ had. And we must lay that upon him. He bore that shame and he bore that guilt. Don't walk around with chains when you are free men and women. Trust in the gospel and believe the gospel day by day that you are free. 
Not free to do whatever you please, free to belong to the kingdom of God that has been consummated or will be consummated and was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to it. And there is joy in this kingdom. There is satisfaction in the king. And it is greater than any earthly thing that may appear to satisfy. And so in your struggle day by day, encourage yourself and remind yourself of the message of the gospel because it guides us day by day to holiness. It guides us day by day to live as Christ lived. And his spirit and his power that resides within believers reminds us of that sin, it exposes that sin, and it's the cause by which we are and become holy people. So this is the lament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand and know that as those Jews that he is condemning, when he returns, we will be as the saints of God, Proclaiming with joy and satisfaction, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray.